Thanks so much for... Uh, actually, the guys are crashing the ladies' room. And, like, where's all the... Where's the music? And where's the tablecloths? And can, don't you have candles, too? What is this? This is, like, second rate for the guys. Well, we wouldn't want to spoil the guys. We wouldn't want to set any expectations that they would have to want the next week. Um, thank you so much. First off, um, I'll, I know that we're going to have some time at the end separate where, where the guys will go back to the library and the ladies will be here. Um, but I just want to say thank you um, to both the ladies and the men. Thank you so much for a, a year-long commitment to something like this. It's hard, and um, especially when you grow weary, kind of uh, just anyway, at the end of the school year for many of you and um, just before summer hits. So thank you for being faithful and staying committed. And, um, you know, finishing a program doesn't mean anything. Um, but getting the spiritual disciplines that are within the program, that the program serves to um, put out in front of you so that you understand them and get a chance to practice them, that's what Build is all about and Wellspring is all about. And so I want to just, as we start off, I just want to touch base on those three key uh Spiritual disciplines, those biblical leadership disciplines for the men. Uh, It's the first three for the men. It's the only three for you ladies. Um, Guys are more complex. They need six. No, that's not it. They're not more complex. They're they're more, they they just need more rules. (laughs) Principles, something. But discipline one is where it all begins, right? With the heart. And and when we talk about the heart, when the Bible talks about the heart, the Bible's talking about your inner man. Who you are inwardly before him. It's, it's who you are if you die. There's another way to think of it. If you die, you continue on. And it's your inner person before God. And the whole point of, of build, and really the, the foundation for the Christian life, is that you would bring your inner person before God in his word. And primarily so that you can meet with God. Your inner person needs to be renewed. You need to be renewed in the inner man. You need to be renewed in your mind. And you do that by coming to the Word of God, um, primarily to meet with God. Your time in the Word of God needs to be, first and foremost, just worship and enjoyment of God, delight in Him, Um It needs to be an expression of your desire for Him. Um, That you want to know Him. That you want to love Him. That you want to express your fear of Him. That you would sit under His Word and let His Word speak over your life. And that you would tremble at His Word. Um, You need that. That's um, foundational to your life. That you would feed yourself. You have, um, as a mixed creature in Christ, you have new desires from him that come in this inner man that he remakes in his own image, and then you have sinful desires yet. And you are in a constant battle on which one you're going to feed, and which ones you're going to starve. Now, it would have been nice if God would have taken us just from being... um, all we had was sinful desire to what it will be like in heaven where we'll only have pure desires. It would have been nice. That would have been my plan. Just to kind of skip over this thing that we call the Christian life and get right to the good stuff. 
But this is what he determined. And by the way, that doesn't mean this isn't good stuff. This is good. This is so much better than what we were, is it not? Um, We now have new desires for Christ, for his word, um, for each other that we never could have had before he saved us. And now in this mixed condition, you need to bring your heart, you need to bring your inner person before God's word repeatedly to feed the new desires there, to grow them, and to starve out sin and to fight against sin. Um, If you focus on that and you spend uh, your energies on that, almost everything else in the Christian life will fall into place. Not just automatically, everything's a fight. But if you don't win that first battle there, the Christian life is is difficult. Um, And so this is foundational. Um, It's like making sure that your cup is full before you go do anything. Um, The second discipline is your home or your household relationships. Um, It doesn't matter if you're a son or a daughter living in your parents' house. It doesn't matter if you're a dad um, or a mom and you've got children in your house. It doesn't matter if you're just a husband and a wife living together. Uh, It doesn't matter if if you're a single guy and you've got roommates or a single girl and you've got roommates. Your focus is on your household relationships. Um, God makes the household uh, primary in... um, It's been this way from Israel all the way through even into the church. Um, But if your heart is full of God in his word, the first place that needs to feel the impact of the kind of man or the kind of woman you are before God is your household relationships. They need to feel that. There needs to be a sense, uh, uh, an aroma in your house of, of your heart for God. Um, that people in your household should have a sense that um, my dad or my husband, my wife, uh, that man, that woman, they're, they're about God in his word. God's word is, is on their minds. It's, it's on their lips. Um, they desire him. Um, that needs to be impacted first. Um, third discipline is then outside your home and that's your ministry Um, and your ministry will be within the church family and it'll be outside the church family and God made it really simple there's only one primary tool for your ministry and that's the gospel he just made it really simple Christians need the gospel and sinners who are not yet saved need the gospel Um, we keep preaching it to ourselves not because we need to be saved again but because we need to have um, our minds renewed in that gospel. Um, And we preach the gospel to the lost because that's their only hope. Um, The person who has an effective gospel ministry in the church and outside the church is the one who has a life of integrity um, before who they are, before God, with nobody watching, and then in their home. Um, And then when they step out into public, and that's disciplines one and two and three working together. Who you are alone before God, and then who you are as you step into your household, and then as who you are as you step into ministry, there needs to be integrity there. Meaning sameness, wholeness, not pieces. This kind of person here, another kind of person there, and yet another kind of person in the third arena. And so the more you can work on those things, um, the the... The, the more effective your life is for Jesus Christ and the better the body 
has a chance of benefiting from your part in the body. We're going to try to talk about a lot of these things together today as we look at um, the biblical vision and the gospel purpose for Grace Bible Church. But that's foundational for everything there. That's what we're all about. If you walk away with anything after a year of being in Build or Wellspring, it's that I need to shepherd my heart with the Word of God. I need to make an impact in my household first. And I need to step into the lives of people with the gospel. Um, and doing so, God will bless um, and aid you and give you strength and grace to be what he's called you to be. Okay? So with that in mind, let's, let's pray and let's do this one more time together with God's word and uh, we will finish up the year, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be together, to um, both groups together, the men and the women. Lord, I thank you for... Um, Sarah and all of the ladies who help lead uh, Wellspring, thank you for their faithfulness and their diligence, their sacrifice and commitment to provide leadership. Thank you for all of the ladies who are small group leaders in Wellspring, and Lord, just thank you for every woman who's been a part of it. Lord, I pray that you would take um, their their feeble efforts. Um, and that you would empower them and that you would strengthen them and you would make them fruitful efforts um, so that they would grow closer to you, that their, their hunger for your word would only grow and that they would be godly women, um, godly daughters, godly wives, um, moms who fear the Lord and um, sisters who love Jesus, your son, above all things. So, Father, would you please um, bless their efforts as their year draws to a close. And and though the wellspring ends and though build ends, Lord, we pray that the pursuit of these disciplines would never end, that this would just be setting the trajectory for the rest of our lives. Um, Father, thank you for the men and all of their hard work as well, their faithfulness and their desire to um, submit themselves to these disciplines um, in the pursuit of you. I pray, God, that you would bless their efforts as well and that, Lord, there would be um, an abundant harvest that would be reaped in Grace Bible Church, that there would be godly men everywhere um, capable of leading families, capable of leading small groups, capable of leading ministries, an abundance of men qualified to be deacons and elders in this church, an abundance of men who want to run with the gospel Um, and plant churches and um, bring the gospel to those who have never heard it before. Lord, all of this exists not for us, not so that we can feel better about ourselves, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back in regards to anything, but all of this exists so that your son Jesus can be glorified in our midst as a church and so that um, more can hear about Jesus, be saved by him and through his sacrifice at the cross, so that more and more can know him with saving knowledge and worship him and love him. Then your name will be magnified. And Lord, that's what our desire is. Take these efforts even this morning as we talk about the vision and the purpose of our church and use these to grow us more into Christ-likeness. And it's in Christ's great name that we pray. Amen. All right, if you... Do not have um, the handout. You're going to need one. Um, guys and girls are both on the tables back there. You can um, also just feel free like normal, like we've talked about all year, 
If you need to get up and move around, you can do that. Um, if guys, so that you know, bathrooms are right down this hallway, and then to the right. Okay. Um, so let's uh, take out your discipline six, girls. You don't have you don't have discipline six, but this makes sense for you to um, uh, focus on because it helps you to see what you're doing in Wellspring and how it fits into and under what the biblical vision and the gospel purpose of our church is. So um, let's let's jump into that. Um, if you'll look on our, our bulletin or if you look on our website, you'll see that we have a statement that says a biblical vision of God leads us to our gospel purpose in Christ. That's kind of a simple way of saying what um, Grace Bible Church is about. We, we have a biblical vision and then we have a gospel purpose. Okay? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about those two uh, parts, and then we're going to, at the end, talk about how they're related to each other. Okay, so uh, let's start first with a biblical vision of God. Um, what do we not mean by vision? I think anytime you use the word vision, you have to be really careful. Uh, so let's talk about what we don't mean when we say vision. We don't mean some kind of subjective, unverifiable experience or dreamlike thing, Right? We're not talking about that at all, um, where when somebody said, I have a vision, you basically just have to take their word for it. That's not what we're talking about, okay? Um, what do we mean by a biblical vision? Um, I've got two little sub-points for you on that. Um, let's just take first the word vision. When you think of the word vision, think of sight, okay? Just think of sight. Um, what do we mean by this? We mean that we want to set our sights or our vision on the Bible. That's what we want. It's a biblical vision. So think we're putting our sights on Scripture. Um, we want to also, though, not just see Scripture. We don't want Scripture just to be the target. But we also want Scripture, in a sense, to be the lens through which we look at the world. So you're looking at the Bible. You're looking into the Bible. But you want to see the world as the Bible sees the world. Okay, does that make sense? It's a biblical vision. Um, why is the word biblical in there or Bible? It should be obvious. Uh, we want the Bible, we want texts in the Bible to be, um, here's your key phrase, the controlling line of authority. Okay, we want the Bible to be the controlling line of authority for us. Not my experiences. My experiences cannot be the controlling line of authority in my life. In other words, I will only do that which matches my experiences, good or bad. Okay? L let me give you something a little, um, probably more subtle than, than that. Um, we don't even want our theology to be the controlling line of authority. Let, let me flesh this out a little bit for you. Um, there, the difference here would be this. We have a biblical vision, not a theological vision for the church. Okay, We want the Bible to be the controlling line of authority for everything we do. We don't want our theology to. Now, that might make you panic for a second, but I don't think it will once you think of it this way. Um, let's, let's talk about some basic things here. Every one of you sitting here today is a theologian. You are. When you read your Bible... Everyone draws theological conclusions from the Bible. Everyone does. You cannot help but draw theological conclusions. You draw conclusions about God's 
character. You draw conclusions from what you read about what the Bible says about sin and our condition before God. You draw theological conclusions about what God says has to happen for a sinner to be saved. You do that. Everyone does that. You draw theological conclusions, but they come from what? The Bible. So they are secondary. Theology is secondary to Scripture. It's determined by Scripture. And everyone organizes their theology. After a while, as you're reading through your Bible, you start to go, Oh, God is faithful. I've got a God category for my theology. He's faithful. He's sovereign. He's good. He hates sin. And you start to assemble in your mind. You don't have a notebook somewhere where you've done this off on your own and you've drawn your own categories and you've written your own systematic theology book. You don't do this, but you do do it mentally without yourself even knowing. You draw theological conclusions from the Bible and then you organize them. Man is this way. Man is fallen, man is a rebel, man is an enemy of God, etc. Um, but man in Christ can be this, and you start to draw conclusions and organize them. And everyone, everyone is influenced by those theological conclusions when they come back to the Word of God. Alright, so here's the pattern. You come to the Bible, imagine if you could be a blank slate. You come to the Bible... And let's say it's a theological slate. Okay, There's no theology written on your, the slate of your heart. You come to the Bible, you read it, and you start to write on your theological slate. The Bible says that God is, and you start to draw theological conclusions, and then after a while you start to organize them in the way that you think. When you come back to the Bible with something written on your theological slate, you are influenced by what conclusions you've drawn when you come. If you've drawn wrong conclusions about God from what you've read, you bring those back to the Bible. If you draw right conclusions about God, you bring those back to the Bible. Do you understand? So, the point is, we don't want what we draw on our chalkboard or slate of our hearts, we don't want that to be the controlling line of authority. You might be right. But what needs to be the controlling line of authority in your life? This. And so what, so in other words, maybe there's some new things here for you. Just because you've got a theological idea doesn't necessarily mean that it's biblical yet. It might be. But you want to make sure your controlling line of authority is not Grudem's systematic theology. Or Burkhoff's systematic theology. Or Chafer's theology. Or anybody's theology. You want to make sure that your controlling line of authority in everything you do is the Bible. So what do you do with your, your theological conclusions? Does that mean that they are, are unimportant? No, it means they're very important. But what do you do with your theological conclusions? When you, when you come to the Bible, you take those theological conclusions and you have two things you can do. One, you can come and you can put a chokehold on those theological conclusions and say, I've drawn them, I'm holding to them, and Bible... Can't touch it. Or you can come with those theological conclusions and you can open them up in the palm of your hand and say, God, with your word, will you test these again? 
And I want your Bible to be the controlling line of authority to determine what my theological conclusions are. I've done this every day of my life as I come to your word, God, but I, I want to do it again today. Let your Bible determine for me what's the right theology to hold. What, what are the right conclusions to have? And you'll find that sometimes you'll come to a new text and you'll be like, oh my goodness, I've got some work to do on this idea of God that I thought I had. How does this fit into it? And you need to allow the Bible to control your theology, not the other way around. Because here's what will happen. If you commit to a system of theology, a way of categorizing theological conclusions, if you commit to that and you hold on to that, when you come to the Word of God and the Word of God appears to not say what this system says, what is going to have to give if what you're committed to first, if your controlling line of authority is your theology, what's going to have to change? The Bible. And we do this. Christians do that. Um, and so it's a biblical vision. A vision of the Bible. We want Bible texts, one after the other, to be the controlling line of authority for us. Okay? And, next bullet point, it's a biblical vision of God. Of God. The emphasis is on God. If we read our Bibles, if you read your Bible and you notice with great accuracy and conviction, creation, Genesis 1, Mosaic Law, the rest of the Pentateuch, Moses and his relationship with Israel, great accuracy and you've got strong conviction about that and ooh, a Davidic dynasty, a, a, a kingly line from David and then, and then um, the church in the New Testament and then... And then the end, Jesus comes back and, and you have great accuracy in noticing all of those things. If you have a biblical vision of those things, but you miss God, you have nothing. Because what is creation without God? And what was Israel without God? What is a Davidic dynasty without Messiah? What is the church without God? What is the end without God? See, you want the God of creation. You want the, the God of Israel. You want the God of the Davidic line of, of David. You want the God of the church. You want the God of the end. You want God. So it's a biblical vision of God. And this is what Discipline 1 is all about in Build and Wellspring. Um, scripture is first and foremost the revelation of a being whose name is God. I remember when I heard that probably in 1998 and it turned my world upside down as a pastor because I was very concerned to come to the Bible. I loved the Bible. I wanted to understand it rightly. I wanted to know the truth. I didn't want to be wrong. I needed to teach a lot. And when I heard that statement, I realized that there was quite a few times I was coming to God's word and I was missing God. And yet it was there primarily to reveal God. That was a correction in my life that I've been working on ever since. Okay? It's a biblical vision of God. Um, that's why in the biblical vision of God there's, there's a, three parts to it and all three parts are on the three, parts of the, the three members of the Godhead. The glory of God... Um, the cross of Jesus Christ and the transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. That's why we focus on that. So, 
our biblical vision is an attempt for us to try to summarize when we set our sights on Scripture, what do we see in Scripture, okay? So let's go ahead and jump into those three members of the Godhead. Shall we do that? Should we talk about the glory of God? So, when we summarize the biblical vision of God, we're thinking of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and what they're doing in the Bible. Anytime you take the message of the Bible, somebody came to you and said, what's the Bible all about? You would have to go, wow, i got to come up with a statement. i gotta, I got to say something. I can't just say, I don't know. I have to say something. And whatever it is that you say, will you be able to say it all? Of course not. So anytime you try to summarize the Bible, do you leave important stuff out? Yeah, it's just kind of unfortunate, but that's the way that it is. Our biblical vision that we try to summarize the Bible leaves out important stuff. Because it can't say everything. But we try to sum it up with the three members of the Godhead. Okay? So let's talk about the glory of God first. This is where we would locate the Father. Um, and by saying that, that the Father or, or has glory, we're not saying that Jesus doesn't have glory or that the Holy Spirit doesn't have glory or weightiness. Um, we're just referencing the Father here most of all. What does glory mean? What does glory mean? In fact, I encourage you, um, as you're reading through the Bible, um, this is one of the first things I did as I... Um, the, this is one of the first themes that I looked for as I read through the Bible in a year, many years ago, is... Um, I took my Bible, I still have this old Bible, and every time I found the word glory, I, I just wrote it out in the margin of my Bible because I wanted to just be able to see wherever it was on the page of my Bible where glory was. And I wanted to see how the Bible used the word glory. Um, I, I encourage you to do that. You'll have a really fruitful um, study with it. Um, what does glory mean? Glory means God's weightiness, His heaviness, and it's not physical weight, but it's his weightiness, meaning like his impressiveness. The, the, the word in the Hebrew in the Old Testament means, it means literally just weighty. God is weighty. He's like a too big of a burden. He just would overwhelm you and you'd be done. He's just impressive. Okay? Um, however, that weightiness that impressiveness was expressed in the Old Testament primarily through radiant light. And so it is, an it is the, the impressive, weighty, radiant glory or light of God. I mean, over and over what you see in the Old Testament is, especially with Moses, is there is the radiant glory that comes down on the tabernacle or it comes down on the mountain. The whole mountain, Mount Sinai, is on fire. It's shaking. And it's shaking because of God's radiant impressiveness on the mountain. Does that make sense? That's the, uh, the glory of God. Exodus um, 33.20, we're going to look at in just a moment, but um, is this idea. No man can see God and live, but what God does let man see about himself is his glory. God's glory is a, is, is, a, is a communication tool from God to communicate himself. You cannot look God full on and survive. Okay, John 1.18 says, uh, no man um, has seen God at any time. But men over and over... And women over and over in the Bible did see the glory of God. 
God revealed in all of his impressive, radiant splendor, and when they saw it, they thought they were going to die. And when they didn't die seeing it, they thought they should have died. He's that impressive. So let's talk about some Old Testament teaching on this. I want you to go to Exodus 33. Go to Exodus 33. As soon as Israel gets out of Egypt and they make their way into the wilderness, um, immediately they begin to grumble. There's no water. What did you lead us out here for? We could have stayed slaves back in Egypt and we could have everything we wanted. Our bellies would be full. We'd have plenty of water to drink. What are you doing? And so it's just been this way from the very beginning. Moses um, went up on the mountain to be with God at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 32, that is when they made the golden calf. Um, and then God says at um, in, in Exodus 33, verse 1, he spoke to Moses. He said, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt. Go to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I'll give it. I'll send an angel before you, and I'll drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. I'll, I'll keep my promise in regards to that. Go to a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I just might destroy you on the way. God just said, after I, it's just in your best interest if I don't go with you because you will all die. And the people heard that. They were sad. And Moses is meeting with them later. Look at verse 12. And Moses said to, to Yahweh, he said, See, you, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said an angel, but I don't know who, who's going to lead us. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. God, we have this unique relationship. Me, Moses, you, God, we're, you, you said I'm a friend. You said I'm the, the most humble man who's ever lived. Now therefore I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight and consider too, God, that this nation is your people. You, you made these people. They belong to you. This is, this is your responsibility, God. And he's not being disrespectful. He's just reminding God what God already knows, obviously. And God says in verse 14, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And I love what Moses says. If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all of the other people who are upon the face of the earth? What was the primary difference between Israel and every other nation? Tell me. What's the difference? Who's the difference? It is Yahweh. It is God. Moses has a heart for God and he's saying, if you don't go with us, this, is, this whole thing is undone. You must be with us. What a passion for God Moses has. We have so much more revelational light. We have Jesus. We have the cross. We have an empty tomb. And I, I don't think my pursuit and my desire for God matches this. God says, I will do this thing, verse 17, which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight. I have known you by name. And then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Let me see your radiant, weighty impressiveness. 
And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you can't see my face for no man can see me and live. And then these peculiar words, the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me, with me, and you shall stand there on the rock. So somehow God has located himself and he's accommodating himself to our language. How does an eternal, infinite being do that? I don't know, but he's accommodating himself. And he says, there is a location where I am upon this mountain. And you'll stand on the rock and it will come about that while my glory is passing by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. And for the first time this morning, when I was reading this again, I thought, you know what? He didn't say, Moses, go stand in the cleft of the rock. God says, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. So I don't know if there was a, I don't know what that means, but he didn't make Moses do it. He said, I'll just put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to shield you in this rock. And not only that, but when I pass by, I'm going to cover you with my hand until I pass by. You tell me how impressive and radiant and just honestly flat out dangerous is God. He is not a toy. I will cover you and when I pass by and as my radiant splendor is passing you by, then you can peek, but you can't see my face. Verse 23. That's your second book of the Bible. Uh, of, the, of the Bible. It's Exodus. That's the God of the Bible. Um, radiant glory. What about the New Testament's teaching about God's glory? Here's what's interesting. Can I run you through a, a couple of verses? Go to John 1, verse 14. Now God is going to start, you're going to find that Yahweh has glory to share. We're going to see that there's glory for His Son named Jesus. John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, His weightiness, His radiant splendor. When you pick up the word glory in the New Testament, you're not starting with a brand new, whole new idea of glory. I know we used to talk about glory in the Old Testament this way, but now we're going to talk about it this way. No, it's just the continuing on of the same idea. We saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And when you get to chapter 12 of John, verse 37, John says something really profound. Look at this. 1237. Though he performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes, and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things I said, uh, these things Isaiah said, because Isaiah saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now, who's he talking about? Isaiah saw Yahweh's glory, but now Yahweh's glory is being revealed where? In whom? Jesus. Um, another great passage, you can write it down if it's not already in your notes, Luke nine twenty-eight to 36. That's the glory of God in the sun on a mountain. In Galilee, just like in the Old Testament. And Moses shows up and there's Elijah. 
And Jesus, all his garments are changed to radiant white and his face shone like the sun. And the radiant impressiveness of God was beaming from Jesus. Um, And you have other passages in the New Testament. The ones to pair together from the Old Testament to the New Testament are Exodus 33 and Luke 9. Um, The Exodus passage we were just in, Moses wanting to see his glory, is on a mountain, he wants to see the glory of God, and the one to pair with that in the New Testament is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's Messiah on a mountain and his radiant glory bursting forth from him. That's the parallel to the Old Testament. Um, And the other Old Testament passages to parallel would be like Isaiah 6, uh, where Isaiah sees his glory, and then John 12, where John says that that glory is now in, in Messiah Jesus. So from cover to cover, um, from the beginning of the Bible through the end of the New Testament, the Bible is all about the radiant impressiveness of God. And as it then eventually is located in Jesus. Um, that's what the Bible is all about. So, so what? That's great. But so what? Here's the so what. Practically speaking, what, 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 should this, what should this provoke in you and me? What this should do is make us want to daily position ourselves before this book so that we can see the radiant glory of God in it. There should be something. Look, you can't get what Moses got. You can't have that experience. Oh, but you can have his word, and his word is better than any experience you've had. Okay? So position yourself before the word of God to see, to drink in the radiant glory of God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, The men and women in the Bible who were most equipped and most effective for God and what he called them to do were the ones who saw his glory. Do you want to glorify God with your life? I think oftentimes when we think of saying that idea, I want to glorify God with my life, we think of things that we should do. Ways to be obedient, good things to do that would please God. Glorifying God is pleasing Him. And, and that's right. Don't want to take anything away from that. But the first step in glorifying God should be to drink in His glory. Do you want to glorify God with your life? then come to the well of his impressive, radiant splendor and drink it in. Those who did that glorified God very well. And so will you. So there's the glory of God in the Bible. Let's talk next about the Son, Messiah, Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ. You have the glory of God and the cross of Christ. Christ's death is related inseparably to God's glory. The glory of God in Scripture is inseparably tied to the blood shed in substitutionary sacrifice. Okay? Did you know that? The glory of God in the Bible is tied inseparably to substitutionary sacrifice. Let me give you um, a little um, review of basically um, Leviticus. Uh, They come out, Exodus... Uh, they, they, Israel comes out of Egypt. Uh, God meets them at the mountain. The, the mountain is trembling, quaking under the radiant glory of God. And the warning goes out, don't let the animals come near. Don't anybody come near this mountain. Whoever touches it will die. Moses goes up for 40 days at a time. 
He's receiving from God the law. And central to God's law is, I'm going to give you a copy of a pattern of the real thing, of where I dwell. And I want you to take the copy of that pattern and I want you to go back down into all of the tents of Israel and I want you to make me a special tent based off of the pattern I give you of where God dwells. So, the one whose radiant presence is making a mountain shake says, make me a tent and put me in the middle of the tents of Israel. How do you put a radiant splendor of God shaking a mountain into a tent in the middle of the other tents? And they did it. And he said, in that tent everywhere is going to be blood. The blood of a sacrifice shed in your place so that you can know me. So the radiant splendor and glory of God on a mountain confined somehow to a temple in a mercy seat above the ark and animal after animal after animal with its throat slit and blood everywhere. So God paired together inseparably his radiant glory and blood, the blood of a substitute. You cannot talk about the glory of God or read about the glory of God in Scripture without very soon getting to a substitute being sacrificed. Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin through the shedding of Messiah's blood, the putting away of sin, bearing the sins of many. You can read Hebrews 9. It's all about this. Um, So what are we talking about when we talk about the cross of Christ? Let me tell you what we're not saying. Two things we're not saying. Um, We're not interested merely in a cross. Um, When you word it this way, the cross of Christ, or you use language like wanting to be cross-centered, you run the risk of, of a legitimate question that could be asked. Are you all about a cross and not about Christ? Or what's the deal here? Uh, so what we're not saying is we're only about a cross and we don't care about Christ. What is, the, what is a Roman cross without Jesus? Nothing. We don't want that. Um, we don't want a Christless cross. It's the cross that belongs to Jesus. Also, in focusing on the cross of Christ, secondly, we're not trying to diminish the resurrection. Okay. Uh, In fact, the resurrection in Acts is mentioned more than the cross. Did you know that? They are to be witnesses of the what? The resurrection. Um, So what we're saying is the cross has no meaning unless Christ is on it. If you have the right one dying on it, the cross is everything. And the empty tomb even makes no sense if you don't have Jesus, right? Um, You have to have the right one dying on the cross. You have to have the right one shedding his blood as a substitute. You have to have the right one leaving the tomb empty. Uh, But we're focusing on his atoning sacrifice uh, in particular. What's the Old Testament type in the Old Testament? It's Leviticus 16. It's the Day of Atonement. Do you remember this? Um, The Day of Atonement um, was... A special day marked out once a year for Israel where the high priest was to first take a bull and he was to sacrifice it to purify himself so that he could even do the goat thing with the Day of Atonement. And then 
they were to take two goats and they were to cast lots for the goat, flip a coin for the goat. And they would select the one that would come into the tent and it would be sacrificed as a substitute in the place of the people because it needed to, God wanted to cleanse Israel of, of, of her impurities. And so then they would do that. He would sacrifice the bull for himself and then he would sacrifice the goat and then the, great, uh, the high priest would come out and he would lay his hands on the head of the other goat that they called the scapegoat. Um, and he would confess over that goat onto that goat the sins of Israel. So it was a, a picture of, of the priest transferring the sins of Israel onto the goat. And then what they would do, there was a man who was picked to stand in waiting, and what he did is he took that goat out into the wilderness and chased it off away, out of the sight of Israel, and a goat all by itself in the wilderness would die, most likely. And so the idea is, in the Day of Atonement, a substitute who washes away the impurities of the people and the sins of the people being taken out of God's sight. The, the theological term for that is expiation. That's the taking away of sin out of the sight of God. And the other theological word is propitiation. It's a biblical word. Propitiation means God's wrath has been satisfied towards the worshiper because God took his wrath out on the substitute instead of the worshiper. That's the Day of Atonement. The New Testament teaching is everywhere, isn't it? But let's go to Hebrews 9. And in the New Testament, of course, we find that uh, there are no more animal sacrifices. Why? Because the Lamb of God, the one that God had in mind ever since the beginning, um, finally came. Hebrews 9, verse 22. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, there's that principle that God set for himself a long time ago. Verse 23, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Messiah did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but he entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So you see what the tabernacle was and what the temple was was just a copy of the better thing. Drop down... um, Uh, Let's keep reading, verse 25. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he, Jesus, would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been revealed or manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what he did. He came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Um, Verse 28 he offered once himself once to bear the sins of many. That's the idea from the Old Testament and especially in the Day of Atonement. To atone um, means to, you can take the two, you can just kind of break it up and say at one. Atone, at one, is to make the worshiper at one with God. And to do that, there's key things that have to happen. Sin has to be taken out of God's sight. His wrath must be satisfied. And the sinner must be forgiven or reconciled. 
So you have key words with the word atonement. And it's really important for you to not be turned off by theological terms. These are, these are biblical ideas. These need to be your favorite terms in all of the world. And, and you don't gloat um, over others that you know them. Oh, you don't know what propitiation means? <laughs> I didn't either until Saturday. Um, or whatever. But you, but you want to make sure that these are precious ideas and concepts to you. Expiation, the taking away of sin. Propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath. Reconciliation, uh, reconciling the enemy to God. That's the idea of atonement, and that's what Jesus did. Practically speaking, so what? What's the big so what? How about things that Paul said, like in 1 Corinthians 2? I determined to know nothing among you except what? Christ and him what? Crucified, which is him sacrificed as the substitute. How about Galatians 6, 14 to 15? May it never be that I would boast in anything except what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boasting in his sacrifice. So what, what should you do? Just like you would position yourself daily to drink in the glory of God from Scripture, position yourself daily to be able to drink in, here's your theological phrase, penal substitutionary atonement. A penalty had to be paid, but could only be paid by a substitute in order to what? Atone for your sins. So come before the word of God to drink in this gospel, this good news of Jesus and what he has done. Um, What other message do you have? Your whole being rests on whether or not God actually did that. God says he did it. Your whole existence as a Christian rests on you believing that he actually did what he said he did with his son. You don't have any other hope anywhere else. If that's not true, we are fools. And Jesus is not raised from the dead. Um, so position yourself to drink that in. Paul said in Galatians 6 that may, I, may it never be that I would boast in anything except this. May I boast in the cross. Every day come before the word of God so you can boast in the cross, in the sacrifice of Jesus. All right, got two members of the Godhead down. How about a third? The Holy Spirit. The transformation of life by the Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is what? To give you charismatic gifts. Uh, I don't want to make light of that. God did that. Uh, And it was profound and it was necessary. Um, we, We can't forget the primary role of the Holy Spirit. What's the primary role of the Holy Spirit? It is to apply the work of Christ on the cross to your life. It is for the Spirit of God to apply propitiation to you, expiation to you, and reconciliation to you. The Spirit of God is the one who applies the work of Christ on the cross to the life of the one that God is saving. Jesus died over 2,000 years ago. So how now does somebody have those benefits be real for them? Ah, the Holy Spirit. That's the primary role of the Holy Spirit, to come and apply those benefits to the life of the one being saved. Um, And when that takes place, when the Spirit of God is present and does that, a massive, drastic, 
salvation takes place. Okay? You don't merge kind of from one way of living kind of slowly into another way of living when the Spirit of God comes into your life. Um, a massive salvation takes place. It's not merely fire insurance. When the Spirit of God comes, He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to save you from hell. You can still live like it if you want. But you're just covered now. He doesn't do that. The Spirit comes and He seals the believer um, with a stamp of deposit and down payment, a pledge of an inheritance, Ephesians 1.13 and 14. And the Holy Spirit also brings a, a new birth. You must be born again. This is what Jesus was trying to get across to a Pharisee, Nicodemus. Being born again is not a New Testament idea. It had to happen in the Old Testament, and it had to happen by the Spirit. That's what John 3 is all about. Um, the Spirit had to cause one to be born again. So the Holy Spirit brings this new birth, and with that new birth comes a whole brand new way of living. A brand new way of living. And penal substitutionary atonement in the hands of the Holy Spirit does all of this. So, the Bible presents us as being saved in three different tenses. Guys, we've talked about this before, right? Ladies, um, I don't know if you've heard this before. The Bible speaks as if God saved us, past tense. The Bible speaks as if God will save us in the future. And the Bible also speaks that we are being saved. Now, the fact that we are being saved and that we will be saved doesn't mean that it's questionable what he did in the past when he saved us. It's just that God designed his salvation through his Son by the Spirit to be to cover every dimension of life, past, present, and future. That's the way he speaks of it. Okay? So he saved us. Sin's penalty for us was paid in the past by Jesus. So sin's penalty is taken care of in my past. In the future, in heaven, Christ's death at the cross means that sin's presence is completely and forever finally gone. And right now, sin's presence is still with me. So what is the benefit of Christ's work and the work of the Spirit in my life? It is to apply the work of the cross to my life so that I have power over sin's presence. Okay, so I have power. So the penalty of sin paid, the presence of sin finally wiped away, and today power over sin. And this is what the Holy Spirit does in applying the cross work of Jesus to our lives. Okay? We need to understand regeneration and progressive sanctification. By the way, this is where almost 90% of all theological error takes place. Regeneration is being born again. Okay? Um, uh, sanctification, especially progressive sanctification in particular, um, is uh, the process of becoming more and more holy, being sanctified, being set apart. Okay, One, regeneration, and by the way, both of them, crucial work of the Holy Spirit to cause us to be born again and to cause us to become more like Jesus. Okay, Both of them, the, the Spirit of God at work in. However, regeneration is a one-time event, like a birth is a one-time event, okay? Um, You're not continually over and over and over and over being born again. No, you were just born again, birthed into Christ by the Spirit, and it's an event. Now, none of you in your physical birth had anything to do with your own physical birth. 
you didn't help. In fact, you probably only caused problems. Um, you had nothing to do with it. And in your spiritual rebirth, the same is true. You had nothing to do with it. It has only one set of fingerprints upon it, and that's the spirits. Sanctification, however, progressive sanctification, is not an event. It is a process. It is a process of becoming more and more and more holy. That is not an event. It's a process, and that has two sets of fingerprints on it. The Holy Spirit's and yours, right? So, where does error come in? When we get them mixed up. In other words, some errors run into the Christian life that getting born again or becoming saved is a process. Or it happens and then it doesn't happen. Then I fall away and then I, then I have to be saved again. And, and so we turn the event into a process. And we turn that into an, a process by which my fingerprints have to be all over it. And as soon as I take my fingerprints off of it, I've got to put them back on so I can save, be saved again. See, that's error. And the other is on the other side. And this is where Christians really, in fact, it's even a, it, this just keeps coming back in new clothing, a new covering. And that's where you turn sanctification, progressive sanctification, into more of an event. I don't have to do anything. It just has one set of fingerprints on it. So I let go and let God. And I don't have to work. Because if I'm thinking like my sanctification is like justification, the minute I start to work for my justification, I'm in big trouble. That's error. And so if you apply that thinking to your sanctification, you're going to commit error. Your sanctification has two sets of fingerprints on it. The Spirit's and yours. And you utilize the resources that the Spirit of God gives to you. Okay? Um, the Old Testament anticipated this fuller revelation of the Holy Spirit's ministry. I love this. Like in 1 Samuel 10, um, you remember this? Um, the Holy Spirit came upon the prophets um, and Saul was told to go find those prophets. And when he did find them, he was told that he would become another man. Uh, that What a cryptic statement. When you go and you find the prophets, the Spirit will come upon you and you will become another man. That's cryptic. But that's looking forward to something that's going to happen in even greater revelation. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, you have the the benefits of the new covenant for the house of Judah and the house of Israel, uh, where God will take by his spirit, he'll write his law upon their hearts. This has not yet happened for Israel and the house of Judah, but it will someday. And somehow, someway, mysteriously, we are benefiting in that new covenant reality as the church. Chapter 37 of Ezekiel, a valley full of dead bones. And what happens? They start to rattle. Flesh comes on them and they stand up and it's an army. And there's life in them and it's all by the Spirit. I will put my Spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your land. That's God's promise to Israel. Um, Old Testament anticipated this. The New Testament teaching, we talked about it already. John 3, you must be born again. Go to Titus chapter 3. This one book before Titus, or two. Titus 3, verse 3. Paul says this, We also once were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. We were hateful, hating one another. Paul, writing to Gentiles in particular, would... uh, 
to a ministry that, that Titus would have with Gentiles would in particular really know that hateful, hating one another thing. But, verse 4, when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. One set of fingerprints. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. One set of fingerprints. But He did it according to His mercy. Here it is. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Who is this Holy Spirit? Well, it's the one that He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. There's your triune God right there. The Father pouring out the Spirit through his Son upon us, richly. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So there's regeneration, but don't forget verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. See, you can't just... Say, I'm saved, and then not have to work at engaging in good deeds. You must. But it only comes for those who have been born again by the Spirit. Um, So there's new birth passages. John 3, Titus 3, 2 Corinthians 5. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And then there is sanctification passages like Romans 8, verses 10 to 13, where it talks about if you live by the Spirit, you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's the only way to put to death the deeds of the flesh. If you are beginning to be, um, have your eyes opened up to see that, oh my goodness, I am just sinful and I need to stop. And your effort to try to stop that is all on your own. You cannot on your own put to death the deeds of the flesh. You must have the Spirit of God to do that. That's a part of the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Spirit. Galatians 3, verses 3 to 6. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You can't, even though you must be putting your hands to your sanctification, you must not do it as if you don't need the Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 2. We're chosen by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. All right, so what? Practically speaking, so what? Uh, you'll find that the, the practical side of this is the same for every single one. Daily, position yourself to see your need for the Holy Spirit. Express to God in prayer your dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Here, here's the sad thing about the Holy Spirit. He is either the forgotten member of the Godhead or he is the abused member of the Godhead, oftentimes. He is either forgotten or he is distorted. His gifting of the members of the body seems to be what gets all a lot of the talk. And you know what? We don't want to diminish that at all. But what we need to be talking about is what really happens first, regeneration and sanctification. And yes, gifting. So let's not forget his primary foundational work of applying the cross in time. 1985, February of 1985, the Spirit of God applied the work of Jesus 2,000 years ago to my life. In time, that's what the Spirit of God does. Can't forget that. Reflect on that. Plead for a a deeper understanding of, of that third member of the Godhead. Walk by the Spirit for continual transformation. Give thanks to God that He, you have His Spirit within you. All right, so there is your biblical vision of God. Okay? 
the glory of God leads us to inevitably have to talk about the cross of Jesus Christ. But when you talk about the cross of Jesus Christ, your life changes. And that's by the Spirit of God. Okay, That's our way of trying to summarize what the Bible is about. Does that leave stuff out? It leaves a lot of stuff out. But it's our way of trying to summarize it. Okay, The glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ for transformation of life by the Holy Spirit. That's the message of the Bible. Um, let's talk about the gospel purpose in Christ. What do we mean by gospel purpose? What we're, Both of those words are important, gospel especially. Where what we're doing when we say the word gospel and putting that in there, we're recognizing our place in redemptive history in, in which we live. We are not in Abraham's place. We have not been called to sojourn in a land that he has promised to us, but we get to live in it, but it's not ours yet. Okay? Um, we are children of Abraham through faith in Christ, absolutely, but we are not called out to live Abraham's purpose. We are also not called to live out Israel's purpose to dispossess the people around us from this land. Right? Church history, we, we try to do that. Not we, Christians, tried to do that. I don't want to be associated with that Christianity. Um, we're not called to live out Israel's place, to possess, dispossess a pagan nations from a land that we call the promised land. What are we? We're the church in scripture. That's what we are. And like Abraham had a unique purpose that not everybody, you know, Noah didn't fulfill Abraham's purpose. He couldn't. God had a unique purpose for Noah. God had a unique purpose for Adam before he fell. Then God had a unique purpose for Adam after he fell. And then he had a unique purpose for Noah. And then he had a unique purpose for Abraham. And then he had a unique purpose for Israel and so forth. And we don't get all bound up like, well, wait a minute. I'm not doing Noah's purpose. I'm not building an ark. No, we're, we're satisfied. We have a purpose that belongs to us. And it's the church's purpose. And what is it? It is the taking of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus and the Gospels appeared to have three primary overlapping complementary activities for his disciples in regards to the Gospel. Drawing in, building up, and sending out. So we've made it really simple. You've got a little tricycle, tripod thing for the first, and you've got another one for the second. Okay? The glory of God, the cross of Jesus, and transformation of life by the Spirit, drawing in, building up, sending out. Okay? These three, the gospel, and by the way, I'm not flashing gang signs. I do that every year. I used to be able to do blood, like the bloods. I can't do anymore. What happens when you teach eighth graders earth science? They're like, Mr. Maxwell, what's this say? I'm like, oh, you can't do that. Anyway, where was I? I can't remember. The Bible, that's right, we we're talking about the Bible. Drawing in, oh, the, the drawing in, building up, sending out have to do with the, our gospel purpose. Um, and, and, and Jesus had those three tasks. If you read through the gospels, you find him drawing in people, building them up, sending out his disciples. And then you find the rest of the New Testament doing that, just accenting that, clarifying that, bringing greater clarity to it. Um, and then notice how the relationship, just a, a little part about how um, this last triad, the gospel purpose, relates to the first triad. The first triad of the glory of God, the cross of Jesus, and the transformation of life by the Spirit, it's not something you do, but it's something you set the eyes of your heart upon. These are propositions. 
God the Father has glory, the Son has a cross, and the Spirit has transformation of life. Focus on that. But these three are not things that you just sit and think about. You need to be doing them. Drawing in, building up, and sending out. So, propositions and activity. Okay? And that's purposeful as well in this. Uh, let's talk about drawing in. Drawing in. What, is, what do we mean by drawing in? Uh, I've got two uh, different blanks for you to fill in. First, drawing in is uniquely God's sovereign and saving work. It is God's sovereign and saving work. Go to John 6. You know these passages, uh, these two verses. John 6, verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, there were a lot of people sitting around him when he said that, and not one of them probably said, Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. I came here on my own initiative. We're down here by the sea, or we're over here in a field, or we're in the edge of a town, and I remember the Father calling me over here to you. He's not talking about coming to him where he's at. He's talking about what? Drawing in a saving way. That's even confirmed more so in verse 65 of John 6. Is that right? Yeah, 665. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. I'm thinking of the other verse that says, um, um, when, I, when, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Um, so it's even his death that is going to be the drawing of sinners to himself. So by drawing in, what we don't mean, and this is important to understand, we don't mean drawing into a program. We don't mean drawing into an event. Grace Bible Church is doing this cool event, and look how many people we did came. Man, that's cool drawing in. We did it. That's not what we necessarily mean. We don't even mean drawing into your workplace Bible study, uh, to your neighborhood outreach. We don't even mean drawing into our worship service. Um, but what we mean by drawing in is being savingly drawn into Christ through faith in the gospel, right? Um, we're not satisfied for women and men and boys and girls to be drawn into a program but remain unsaved. Um, they need to be drawn into Christ by faith, through repentance. If an unbeliever participates in a program or an unbeliever starts coming to church, um, boy, we're thankful, we're grateful, but the work is just beginning. And it's a work that only God can do. We need to labor in the gospel until they are savingly drawn into Christ. So drawing in is uniquely God's work to do. Secondly, Jesus Christ is God's unique object of attraction. Jesus Christ is God's unique object of attraction. Here it is, John 12, 32. If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. John 12, 32. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the power of God for salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 22 to 24. To those who are called, Christ crucified is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, Your faith must not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God in the cross and in the gospel. Practically speaking, what does this mean, that God has drawing in work to do? Um, I love to think of it this way. Um, 
as you reach out to unbelievers around you, obviously this is the saving work of God. What should your focus be on? You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You know the gospel. You've got an unbeliever in your life. Family, a son, a daughter, a husband, a wife, a parents, whoever. What do you do? It's, it's really very simple. Ask yourself this crucial question. What would the Holy Spirit love to use to savingly draw them into Christ? What would the Spirit of God love to use? Um, he would love to use the gospel. He would love to use penal substitutionary atonement. You don't have to say that to them, but just say, you know, you have a penalty that must be paid and it can't be paid by you. It has to be paid by a substitute. And in so doing, God will make you reconciled to him. He'll make you one with him through faith and only through faith, not by works. I just talked about penal substitutionary atonement and they didn't even know it. But that's the gospel. That's what the Spirit of God loves to use. God only can save a sinner. So say out loud what the Spirit of God loves to use to save sinners. Every day to your children. If you prop up other things, this is where Christians can get really caught off um, balance. Um, Programs are not bad by any means. But if you want to do an outreach program to your neighborhood, let's say it's a marriage seminar or something like a church does a marriage seminar for the neighborhood to get unbelievers there to talk about just how difficult marriage is and we're going to... Um, drawing them into that. Um, you shouldn't draw a false comfort from that, the fact that they're there and until you have put before them what the Spirit of God would love to use. So programs are not bad. Just make sure you're putting the things in front of them that the Spirit loves to use in your own efforts. Um, if you start hanging out with an unbeliever and you start like, hey, well, what, do you, what kind of movies do you like? Oh, me too. Let's go see some. Hey, what kind of music do you like? Me too. I'm going to start... Li- I'm, I'm talking like I'm talking to high school kids here. I'm sorry. But the point is, if you start to identify yourself and put before them the things that like that, and they respond to it, and they love you, what have you put before them? What's really going on? Do you know what's really going on? When will you know what's really going on? When you put before them, you got a penalty, it has to be paid by a substitute, and it will atone for your sins. When they respond to that, now you know what you really got with that people. Go to movies with them, listen to music with them, hang out with them, but that's the measuring line. Put before them the gospel. There's drawing in. Practically, put the gospel before them. How about building up? Uh, Let's go to Ephesians 4. By the way, we're close. Hang in there. Those chairs are feeling pretty hard about now, though, I know. Um, Ephesians 4. Building up. Look at verse 11. And Jesus gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. And he did it for this purpose. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the individual, to the building up of the body of Christ. What is Jesus after in this world? The body being built up, the church. Um, Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. He's thinking of one big man, the church. 
to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, one of the first things that will work to make the church be immature is false doctrine. But speaking the truth in love, verse 15, we are to grow up. So you got building up in verse 12, you got growing up in verse 15. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Again, emphasis on the body. Verse 16, from him, the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, the whole body causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. There it is, building up again. Um, what you need to understand in building up is that it's not just about you. And it's not just about me. Uh, we'll show the relationship here between um, the two, between yourself personally being built up and the body being built up. Look at verse 16. I don't know if you've got, if you underline in your Bible, but here's the main clause. This is a great Paul sentence. Subject at the very beginning, a whole bunch of stuff in between, and the main verb that goes with that initial subject at the beginning. Here's the main idea. The whole body, there's the subject, dot, 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 causes the growth. I don't know what, I'm using NAS, I don't know what ESV says or what other version you're using, but look for that. The whole body causes the growth of the body. Okay, now just think about that. This is what he just said. The body causes the growth of the body. Everything else around that and before that in, in that sent, in that verse tells how that happens. How is it that the body causes the growth of the body? Well, let's take it by pieces. First off, it's from him. You see that at the very beginning? This body causing the growth of the body doesn't happen apart from Jesus. It's from him. Secondly, um, in order for the body to cause the growth of the body, it needs to be fitted and held together. The body has to be fitted and held together. There's got to be connection together. Well, what happens when it's fitted and held together? Well, it's held together by what every joint supplies. Literally, what it means is with every connection of supply. The focal point is on one member of the body comes into connection with another member of the body. And the way that the translators did it was like they called it a joint, like in a body, like in a physical body. But one member comes into connection with another member. And when that happens, there's a supply, a supply of power, literally, a supply of power where those two pieces come together, those two members come together. So the whole body causes the growth of the body because it's all fitted and held together and it's held by what every joint of supply has to offer. Take those pieces apart, what happens to the supply of power? There isn't a supply of power. So the body will not build up itself and grow if you take the pieces apart. Put them together and let them touch in life and there's a supply of power. Now the body can be built up. But, now where does the individual fit in? Right here. According to the proper working of each individual part. If you are a sick, spiritually sick member of the body and you're not working properly, that impacts the supply of connection. And therefore, there's not the power needed for the body to grow. So must you pay attention to your own spiritual health? Absolutely. 
But what's the focal point on in this passage? The building up of the body. So make sure you work right. Make sure your heart is in a good place with God. And then put your life where? In connection with other believers in the body. And when you do that, there is a supply of connection from Him and it causes the body to be built up. In love, in love. It's a body of love. So the focal point for your being built up is not merely about, okay, what is it that I've got to do so that I can grow? Please, think about that. Don't ever stop thinking about that. But if that's all you think of, you haven't gone far enough, biblically speaking. You've got to be thinking, my life has to be in connection with the body of Christ. What does that look like? How about being in a small group? Serving in a ministry? Um, caring for people, just going on your own and, and meeting with people in the body, praying together, encouraging one another. Put your life near another life so that the body can be built up. Okay? If you want any help on that, please talk to an elder. We'd love to help you with that. Lastly, sending out. Let's talk about, um, this is self-explanatory in many ways. What's the connection between drawing in, building up, and sending out? We need to keep all three of these together. And by the way, it's not like um, on Mondays you do drawing in and on Tuesdays you do building up and on Wednesdays you do sending out. I mean, this is like uh, discipline one, two, and three. They overlap and they're fluid with each other, right? You shepherd your heart and then you don't graduate from that like first grade and then go on to second grade, which is take care of your home and then third grade. No, these, these exist within one another. So uh, drawing in sinners is because you're a set one. And oftentimes Jesus built up his disciples best by sending them out. And that's what's helpful. Putting you out beyond your comfort zone, uh, that's a good way to get built up. Okay, So there is a relationship between these three. Um, think about this though. God has always been ascending God. He's always been ascending God. In Exodus, uh, he sent Moses to Israel. Um, in Isaiah 6, he sent Isaiah. In Jeremiah 1, he sent Jeremiah. In Ezekiel 2, he sent Ezekiel. He sent all of the prophets. In fact, he says, if they weren't sent by me, they're in big trouble. Uh, in John 1, uh, John the Baptist was sent by God. So God has always been ascending God. What kind of a God is he? He's ascending God. Uh, Jesus Christ says that he was sent by his Father. You read through the Gospel of John and you'll find over 50 times mentioned or this word send. Uh, it's an emphasis in the Gospel of John. Um, Jesus was sent by his Father. So let me get this. God the Father ascending God. God the Son sent by the Father. What about the Holy Spirit? Sent by the Father. Okay, the third member of the Godhead, John chapter 14 says, verse 26, the Father will send him in my name. John chapter 15, verse 26 whom will I, I will send to you from the Father, this Spirit, Jesus says. Chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, I will send him to you. So do you get this? God the Father ascending God, God the Son sent by the Father, and the Spirit sent by both the Father and the Son. When that sending triune God saves a sinner, what does that sinner become? A sent one. How could you not be a sent one? Right? We are sent ones. God doesn't know how to make any other kind of sinner. Disciples of Jesus, 
Christian, I shouldn't say sinner. He makes the sinner into the Christian. Who is the sent one? Disciples of Jesus, the body of Christ, are sent ones. Jesus said that to his disciples in John 4, verse 38, after the dealing with the woman at the well. I, I send you. John chapter 17, verse 18, in his great high priestly prayer. Father, as you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. John chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father sent me, I also send you, he said to them after he was raised from the dead. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to chapter 10, verse 5, he told them, look, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Chapter 10 hits and they find out that who are the ones that they just prayed for? Themselves. They were the ones that get sent out into the harvest. Practically speaking in Acts, to be a witness of Jesus Christ is to be sent by him to testify of his resurrection. Uh, It's everywhere in Acts. So practically speaking, what what, what should you do with this? Um, Fight against spiritual amnesia. You will forget that you are a sent one of Jesus Christ. You will forget. You'll get caught up in your life and what you're doing, and you will forget that you are a sent one of Jesus. So do whatever it takes to come back to the Bible to let that speak to you again and and remind you, oh yeah, I have an identity. Um, My identity is a sent one of Jesus Christ into this world. That's why I'm here, is to live as a sent one in my household, live as a sent one in the place that I live in my neighborhood, in the place that I work, where he's positioned me, where I go to school. Um, I, I'm a sent one, in, even in my ministries at church. Um, and maybe someday God might even more formally send me through my church to do church planning or missions work. God has an ingenious... Uh, he's got an amazing evangelism program. It's just called Your Life. It's where you live. Who could plan this any better? You go to the same, you live in the same neighborhood all the time. You see the same people all the time. You go to work and you're surrounded by unbelievers, unless you're me. Then I'm surrounded by Smed and Allie and Josh. But there's other people in the office, which is really fun to have. Um, but you're surrounded by unbelievers. If you're a mom, you've got a bunch of little unbelievers all around you. Um, so what a great program. Every day of your life, just be a sent one there. Uh, your church can't program better than that. What program could we call together where we would get the same people there every single day and put you there every single day with that kind of effectiveness? Um, that's not to say we shouldn't program and do some evangelism that way. We, we, we probably should. But this is crucial. Take advantage of your sent one status before the world that you live in. Um, And finally, on this drawing in, building up, and send out, um, it's a gospel purpose. The gospel is central to all three. What is drawing in if you don't have the gospel? If you don't have the gospel, sinners will not be drawn in to Jesus Christ. What is your building up and what is the building up of the body if we don't have the gospel? We don't have biblical um, spiritual building up. And what are you if you run out into the world but you don't take the gospel with you? Maybe, maybe you just do good deeds. You just bring social justice with you. You feed orphans and you, and you give them water. And look, those are good things to do, but they are nothing apart from the gospel. Do not be fooled by that. 
take the gospel with you everywhere you go. Gospel is central to all those things. So, a biblical vision of God leads you to be a very active person with the gospel. You do not look at the glory of God in the cross of Jesus Christ for a transformed life by the Holy Spirit and sit back and do nothing. You are a sent one who is trying to draw in and be built up and live as that sent one. Okay, a very active life. All right. You are very patient. You are very persevering. Do you have any questions, um, comments, clarification you want? Because Sarah would love to answer them. And Scott. Yes, Bart. Are you asking me personally how I know or how would one know? Um, yes, if you were reading the Bible but missing God, how would you know you're missing God? Um, yes. Um, when I when when somebody first off, I think it's very possible that somebody would read the Bible for a very long time and miss God completely. This hap- this has always been going on. Um, in fact, it's one of the great deceptions of the devil and the deceptions of our sin that makes us feel content that our Bibles are open, but we didn't meet God. But our Bibles were open and we feel good about ourselves. Um, it wasn't until I think somebody actually said that to me when I was at Camelback Bible Church. I heard a, a preacher say that and I, it, it caused me to shudder. Because then I started looking in my Bible and I saw everywhere... That, oh my goodness, the Bible is about getting God. Um, what he said was, we need to come back to the fact that revelation is, uh, Scripture is primarily revelation. It is the revealing of a being, a person. It's a letter from him. If Kim wrote me a letter, we were apart from each other, and she wrote to me, and I said to the kids, hey kids, I want you to see this. Look, mom uses the present tense five times, and, and she always uses active verbs and never passive verbs. And we analyzed her words and we knew where she was and what she did. And we looked at it that way, but we didn't get the point of why she wrote, which was to reveal herself to us, to give us the best of what she had, uh, what she could give to us in our condition apart from one another. We missed the whole point. That can happen. I, I can remember um, like John 5. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. So what is he rebuking the Pharisees for? You've got the word of God and you don't see me? Um, Stuff like this began to jump off the page at me. Um, Psalm 119. Verse 2. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies who seek him with all their heart. Hebrew parallelism in poetry. First line is amplified by the second line. It's a restating of the first line. So here's the first line. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies. I'm going to look at his word for the purpose of obeying it, to observe it in obedience. And the parallel thought is, well, that's someone who's seeking him with all their heart. I got the, I got to read the word so I can obey it. But was I reading it because I was seeking him with all of my inner man? 
With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from you. What does Psalm 119 verse, 11, uh, verse 10 say? With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. The commandments are not God, but the commandments reveal the commander. So don't let me run away from those. If I run away from your word or wander from them, I miss you. Your word I have treasured in my heart so that I may not sin against you. I want these words so that I have a relationship with you. It's, it's, if you start reading your Bible that way, pointing that out, being aware that I can read my Bible and miss God, you'll start to see it everywhere. And it'll be helpful. So, this world doesn't need a, a church that has the Bible open a lot but isn't meeting with God. This world needs a church that is in love with the God of the Bible. Scott. So I can tell that I've uh, read the Word and have been with God when I spend time in the Word and my time after eating the Word, I'm thinking about the theology, what it is that I'm thinking about the God behind the theology. And I'm considering my view, my theology, all these other things, and the thoughts are around those things and not about the God of those things. That's a, a litmus test for me. That's how I can tell when I'm using my time for getting yeah, I don't know if, I'll, if I'm going to say this right because I've been thinking about this. Um, so I'm going to talk out loud for a moment and I may retract anything because it, this might be a heresy alert. Okay, so if all we do when we come to the Bible, I'm going to sound like I'm talking out the other side of my mouth now. I'm going to put a, a balance and attention with this. If I'm reading in, if I'm reading anywhere in the Bible, if I'm reading in Acts, I'm trying to think, in Acts, an illustration, I can't think of one. If I'm reading in Acts and all I'm doing is I'm looking for what it reveals about God, I should do that. I should walk away having worshipped the God who was there. But the Bible was also written to tell us, to give us instruction. Let's say there's specific instruction about how I should live. If I go to the Bible and I get who the character of God is and I'm stunned by who he is, but I miss the instruction on how to live, I've missed that God that I was stunned by. So you you can't get the commander but not obey the commands. Okay? Do you understand this? Because what we're doing is we're adding kind of another complexity to it. If you come to the Bible and all you want is the commands and not the commander... You're not getting God. If you come to the Bible and all you want is the commander but not his commands, you don't have him either. The commander, the law reveals the lawgiver. The lawgiver gives us laws in Christ that we must hold on to. If my son or my daughter say to me, Dad, I love you, but I'm just not going to do what you say. We're gonna, that's a big problem, right? And if my kids come to me and say, I'll do what you say, but I don't like you, that's a problem. Tom? You know, Barb, I, I don't think there's one set answer for each one of us. I know for myself, uh, I could tell when I have met, not met with the Lord, when I've been in the Lord. And there's typically three things in China, the fruit of the Spirit. 
I would say I am not seeking or recognizing my joy inside my salvation. I am the anxiousness of the day. That I am hoping to find peace in maybe a circumstance, what I have in front of me for the day, instead of finding peace in the world. And that these are very specific to me for you know my I'm prone to sin. And the third would be my sinfulness. And I'm looking for something other than just resting with the Lord, which would cause me to be gentle. Psalm 23, chapter 1, and just wanting something else. And I, I really think for each of us, uh, it, it's kind of evaluating. You know, am I looking more like my Savior? And then I. I think that's how I can identify uh, I just miss the Lord Tom, when you do that, when you've when you've met with the Lord the right way, how long does that last before you start getting anxious? Yeah. <laughs> You're a better man than I am. <laughs> This underscores the need to um, continually throughout the day do what you, you hear a lot in the Psalms and, and like Psalm um, 119 especially to, to meditate on his law day and night. Um, that is a continual needing to come back to the word of God to get the God of the word um, because you, your heart is prone to wander. Um, it just is. That's the condition you're in. If you do nothing with your heart, it will slide into sin. That's the that's the condition God saved you into. And by the way, that is a much better condition to be in than what you were before. And it is nothing compared to what you will be in Christ. So is it better? Yes, I'm thankful. Thank you, God, that I'm not dead in my trespasses and sins. And oh, who will save me from this wretched body of death that I am? And oh, God will, through Jesus. So... You find a way to take the word of God with you throughout the day where you can draw whatever it is that you read in the morning or whatever it is that you read at night. When you get up and start the next day, take it with you some way on a card, on your phone, whatever. Set alarms to go off to come back to these things um, so that you have a chance to refresh your heart with the God of the word. The Psalms are a great place to be because David over and over and the psalmist over and over uh, express this, God, if... I, I don't feel like I can find you right now. And if I can't find you, I'm going to die. Um, David had this relationship with God where he was like, "If I need to know that you're near. I want to know that you're near. through you. And we know he's near through his word. Um, that's another good example of a man who wants God. A man after God's own heart. Okay?
All right, we'll let that be.